Chapter Twenty, Part Two, of Margaret Sanger, by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, Part Two, A Stout Heart to a Steep Hill. In addition to selling the review, we tried another experiment in street propaganda. During the warm evenings of one summer, Kitty, Helen Todd, and I, often accompanied by George Swayze, a friendly Englishman, proceeded to the neighborhood of St. Nicholas Avenue above 125th Street, where many white-collar families lived. We used to buy a soapbox at the nearest delicatessen, and Helen, who had a lank, swarthy picturesqueness which attracted attention, mounted it. Swayze, standing behind, held aloft an American flag. Though not a soul might be in sight, except our little group with its bundles of literature and Kitty with her reviews, Helen began in her beautiful voice, Ladies and gentlemen, bowing to the trees, we welcome you here tonight. When nobody appeared, she began again. Ladies and gentlemen, and this time one or two strollers usually lingered. Immediately we raised our pasteboard banners with birth control printed in black letters. She was off in full swing, and in a few minutes we had our audience. In the course of our various trials, people had sent checks and made donations to the Special Defense Fund account, and we sent anybody who gave money, no matter how much or how little, a mimeographed report of all contributors. We had also accepted almost 2,000 paid-in-advance subscriptions, and had therefore incurred an obligation to continue the review for 12 months. One May morning, when I put my key in the office door and swung it open, Anna Lifshitz and I stood and gazed at each other. Only the telephone perched forlornly on top of a packing box relieved the bare and empty room. Files, furniture, vouchers, checks, and business records were gone. We still had to supply the subscribers with nine issues more, yet we had no equipment and not one cent in the bank account of the review. It was a challenge. We hurried over to Third Avenue and for twenty dollars refurnished the office. The loss of the contributors' cards, however, was irreparable. I could never, in spite of my best efforts, recover either them or the missing funds. The strain to finance the review was so great that after June no more issues came out until December. The printer trusted us as far as he was able from month to month. Often the bank account was down to the last hundred dollars, just enough to hold it open. Yet it might be necessary to mail letters. The call might be urgent. I was hesitant to spend that last amount, but I believed faith could bring anything to realization. Invariably, when I operated on that principle and did what I was impelled to do, money poured in, perhaps ten times over. 
always we clean the slate at the end of the year. This was one of the periods of getting roots in and waiting for the organism to grow, of quiescence before the new beginning and quickening. I kept going, conscious that with every act I was progressing in accord with a universal law of evolution, moral evolution, but evolution just the same. This belief seemed at times to force locked doors. It enabled me to dictate hundreds of letters, to interview dozens of people, to debate or to lecture all in 24 hours. Day after day, I attended parlor meetings, night after night, open forums, returning home too tired to eat, too excited to sleep. Frequently at seven in the morning, the telephone started ringing. Somebody wanted to catch me before I left the house. For the purpose of having a more solid and substantial basis on which to operate the review, the New York Women's Publishing Company was incorporated in May 1918. Shares were sold at $10 each. The women who gave both monetary and moral support were the wives of businessmen who advised them how to conduct this organization in the proper fashion. Each month, Mary Noblock opened her charming apartment for the regular meetings any corporation was required to hold. The movement can never be disassociated in my mind from Francis Ackerman, who, at the suggestion of Mabel Spinney of Greenwich House, came to us as treasurer. She was exceptionally able and was soon one of our bulwarks remaining with us eleven years. Her family was wrapped up in orthodoxy, church and Wall Street, and the status quo in politics. But Frances's interests were much broader, and she was not content to lead the usual type of life ordained by her social and financial standing. Tall, very thin, wearing her clothes with an air, Frances was one of the finest persons I have ever known. To her, fair play amounted to a religion. She was so highly sensitive that she lay awake at night after merely reading of an injustice done to anybody. To hundreds of conscientious objectors who were incarcerated during the war because of pacifist or strike activities, she sent cigarette money, magazines, stationary, always anonymously, assisting their families and suggesting plans for their own futures. Her death was not only a blow to us, but a blow to any endeavor that was seeking understanding. Many lifers who depended on her for brightening luxuries must now wonder what has become of her. In 1920, Anne Kennedy came to help boost the circulation of the review and gain further financial aid for it. She was a Californian with wide club experience and had two children, fair, in her thirties, cheerful, and a good mixer. She was most maternal-looking with her soft gray hair and sweet face. You felt you could lay your head on her bosom and tell her the story of your life. The incorporation had heralded a new trend, 
wherein we could have a recognized policy. When the review had first been started, I had had to beg authors to write. Free speech was their favorite theme, and their pieces were inferior, but they were the only things I could fall back upon. I used to ask possible contributors, don't you agree that these poor mothers should have no more babies? Of course, but where's there any article in that? Then I had to suggest ideas, show them how to link these up with larger sociological aspects, until they began to cast into the arena legal, medical, eugenic compositions. The material on free speech continued to come in, but we did not need to print it any longer. Incidentally, we now secured second-class mailing privileges. Soon afterwards, I happened to be talking to a cousin who worked in the post office, a very young boy in his early twenties, who kept assailing me with questions about the review. I could not understand his unprecedented interest and asked, why are you so curious? Well, I'm the official reader. It'll save my having to wade through every issue if you'll tell me ahead of time just what your policy is going to be. Do you make the decisions? That's my job. If any seem objectionable, I send them on to Washington. I was horrified to find this adolescent in a position which permitted him to pass judgment on such serious matters, but I was able to reassure him. The course we had adopted would in no way interfere with retaining our second-class mailing privileges. Many of the buyers of the review had been disappointed because it contained no practical information. I have your magazine. All in there is true, but what I want to know is how not to have another baby next year. Thousands of letters were sent out explaining that the review could not print birth control information. Nevertheless, some of the appeals, particularly from women who lived on lonely, remote farms, were so heartrending that I simply had to furnish them copies of family limitation though urging them to go to their physicians. Every once in a while, I had a telephone message to come down to the post office at an appointed hour. I did so, wondering and uncertain. Was the interview to be about the review, family limitation, or what? The official in the legal department, whom I always saw, fatherly though not old, used to say, now, Mrs. Sanger, you're still violating the law by sending your pamphlet through the mails. If you keep this up, they'll put you in jail again. I objected. The government and I had this out years ago. The federal case was dismissed. It can never be settled while we get these protests. To prove the post office was not having such an easy time of it, he pulled open a drawer, and inside was a little pile of pamphlets and letters from religious fanatics, self-constituted moralists of one kind or another, women as well as men, who had received their copies and then complained. He showed me envelopes addressed to the governor of New York, 
to the President of the United States. I studied the handwriting to see whether I could recognize it as identical with any that had come to me. Perhaps the postmark was Wichita, Kansas. There could not be many from a town of that size, and presently I remembered the request. It was a shattering thing to see that drawer. I had been earnestly trying to aid despairing mothers, and had been betrayed. Here's this proof against you, Mrs. Sanger. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. As long as these women ask me to help them, I'm going to do so. I intended to continue to the limit of my resources, whether or not I had help from those whom I had originally counted upon. In order to make women's clubs feel the need as I did, I had often gone miles at my own expense to present a topic that had taken me years to prepare and then had had to express it to the accompaniment of the clatter of dishes or the stirring of spoons in after-dinner coffees. The members had seemed to have their minds on hot rolls or had been fidgeting to get on to the bridge tables. Sometimes a few, who had come to dabble in sentimentality, had experienced a pleasant emotional response. Oh, the poor things! But that had been as far as it had gone. The continued apathy of such organizations disappointed me intensely. The desire to build up a structure appeared to dominate them all. I had lost faith in their sincerity, respect for their courage, and at this time had no reason to anticipate assistance from them, to upbraid, accuse, or censure them for not doing what I had hoped was useless. But I resolved that I was never again going to talk to them, and, when it seemed necessary that they be addressed, I sent others to do it. My nervousness ahead of lectures continued to be akin to illness. All through the years it has been like a nightmare even to think of a pending speech. I promised enthusiastically to go here or there, and then tried to forget it. The morning it was to be delivered, I awakened with a panicky feeling, which grew into a sort of terror if I allowed myself to dwell on it. It was fatal to eat before a meeting. Some people can keep an audience rocking with laughter and yet get over a message, but I cannot. Seldom do my hearers have anything merry from me. Advisers often say, lighten up your subject. I have always resented this. I am the protagonist of women who have nothing to laugh at. Haywood Brown once remarked that I had no sense of humor. I was surprised at him, but I could understand his statement in a way. He had been at only a few meetings as chairman, and I had been serious to the point of deadliness, purposely bringing forth laborious facts and dramatic statistics. I was grasping at an opportunity to reach his audience, because whenever he was moved by anything deeply— he wrote a story in his column which by reason of its effective irony and smooth prose swayed others to the same extent. I have had much fun, 
although it may have penetrated only to the intimate circle of friends. Once, after giving what I thought was a very up-to-date, spirited talk at the Waldorf Astoria, a dear old lady, at least in her middle eighties, tottered towards me with the aid of a cane, and in trembling voice quavered, I have traveled across the country to hear you speak, Miss Sangster. My mother used to read your poems to me when I was a little girl, and I feel this is a great day for me to be able to clasp your hand. She had confused me with the poetess, Margaret E. Sangster, who in the mid-nineteenth century had been a regular contributor to religious magazines. Inevitably, I have been constantly torn between my compulsion to do this work and a haunting feeling that I was robbing my children of time to which they were entitled. Back in 1913, I had some vague notion of being able to spend all my summers with them at Provincetown. That visionary hope had been immediately dissipated because too many painters began to discover it, and the place became littered with easels and smocks. Jean O'Neill's plays were being produced on the wharf opposite Mary Heaton Vorse's house, and these brought many more people. I wanted to get away even further, and so did Jack Reed, who had also sought sanctuary there. A real estate agent took him to nearby Truro, where the feet of New Yorkers had not yet trod, and I was invited to come along. We saw a little house on a little hill, one of the most ancient in the village. Below it, the Pamet River wound like a silver ribbon to the ocean. An old sea captain had squared and smoothed and fitted the timbers, brought them up from the Carolinas in a sailing vessel, and fastened them tightly together with wooden pegs. The kitchen was bright and warm, and seemed as though many cookies and pies had been baked in it. Jack bought the cottage, but he was never able to live there. As a staff correspondent of the Metropolitan Magazine, he was dashing from the Colorado fuel and iron strike to the European war and back again to New York. In 1917, knowing I, too, had looked at it with longing eyes, he asked whether I would like to buy it. He was starting for Russia the next day and had to have ready money. By a lucky chance, I had just received a check for a thousand dollars in payment for some Chicago lectures. We exchanged check and deed. He left the next day for the land of promise, whither Bill Haywood, his friend, had already gone, and whence neither was to return. Big Bill, who had steadily advocated resistance to conscription, had been arrested and freed on bail, furnished by Jessie Ashley. She had forfeited it gladly to have him safely out of the country. I had had a long talk with him before he had made up his mind definitely to leave. The conversation brought back to me the picture of the times he and I had walked up and down the Cape Cod sands, and he had given me such good counsel about not jeopardizing the happiness of the children. Those who had opposed Bill 
for his hands-in-the-pocket advice at the Patterson strike were the same who were opposing his jumping his bail. Since the day we had together visited the CGT meetings in Paris, Bill had come to see the virtues of expediency. That, rather than languish in jail, where he could accomplish no useful purpose, a revolutionary should, if he could, exile himself. He who fights and runs away will live to fight another day. This, according to the American idea, was cowardice. You should stay and be a martyr. But to Bill, it was now merely short-sighted. He had concluded that the average worker, when he went in for rioting and hand-to-hand -hand combat, was beaten before he had begun. He realized the workers had been split by the war. They had not united and stood up against conscription with any backbone. They could not as yet be depended upon as a force, but some day he hoped to return and reorganize them. Truro provided the children with three carefree months every summer and what still seems to me one of the most beautiful spots in the world. For several years I hung on to this dream of being with them constantly, but it was only a dream. I used to go down to open the house and perhaps snatch a week or so there before being obliged to hurry back, but father and my sister Nan were good foster parents. This house was eventually to burn, as had the one in Hastings. Fate seemed to decree I should not be tempted to slip back into peaceful domesticity. Nor did I have all those hoped-for years of watching the boys grow from one stage to another. I had had to analyze the situation, either to keep them at home under the supervision of servants who might perhaps be incompetent, and to have no more than the pleasure of seeing them safely to bed, or else to sacrifice my maternal feelings and put them in country schools directed by capable masters where they could lead a healthy, regular life. Having come to this latter decision, I sent them off fairly young, and thereafter could only visit them over weekends or on the rare occasions when I was speaking in the vicinity. If the desire to see them grew beyond control, I took the first train and received the shock of finding them thoroughly contented in the companionship they had made for themselves. After the initial excitement of greeting had passed, away they ran off again to their games. At times, the homesickness for them seemed too much to bear. Especially was this true in the 14th Street studio. When I came in late at night, the fire was dead in the grate, the book open on the table, the glove dropped on the floor, the pillow rumpled on the sofa, all the same, just as I had left them a day, a week, or a month before. That first chill of loneliness was always appalling. I wanted, as a child does, to be like other people. I wanted to be able to sink gratefully into the warmth and glow of a loving family welcome. The winter of 1917 to 1918 was particularly hard. 
the snow drifted high and lasted long, and it took forced cheer to keep your spirits up. Dr. Mary Halton assured me that with ceaseless financial worry, inadequate rest, incessant traveling, improper nourishment, I could not survive long. When, therefore, a publisher asked me for a book on labor problems, I snatched ten-year-old Grant out of school and set off for California, taking a small place at Coronado, where I sat myself down for three months to write and to get acquainted with my son. I loved the sunshine. It was a pleasure to be out of doors, to have peace and quiet, and the leisure to arrange my thoughts and put them on paper. I had no inclination towards a labor book, but thoroughly enjoyed letting loose my pent-up feelings on woman and the new race. It was good to classify reasons and set them in order. My opinions did emerge, and it was a great release. I was vividly reminded of prison one day when Grant came home from the school he was attending, both his eyes pretty dirty-looking. I asked him why he had been fighting. I don't want to tell you. I'd like to know. Well, this boy told all the fellows my mother'd been in jail. What did you do? I hit him, and he hit me back. He said, your mother's a jailbird, and I said, she's not. Then another fellow said, my mother said, your mother went to jail, too. Grant had replied, that wasn't my mother. That was another Margaret Sanger. How could you say that, Grant? You know it wasn't true. Mother, he replied profoundly, you could never make those fellows understand. End of chapter 20, part 2